Christ came to earth, eternal life to give. He died my sin to efface. God's love reached out in his mercy to show, freely justified by grace, by grace. It was on the cross he died, for my sin was crucified. There on Calvary, Christ died in my place. He suffered alone for my sin to atone, freely justified by grace, by grace. Redeemed, forgiven, eternal life to claim, my sin, his blood did erase. T'was not a man, but the great love of God, freely justified by grace, by grace. It was on the cross he died, for my sin was crucified. There on Calvary, Christ died in my place. He suffered alone for my sin to atone, freely justified by grace, by Go and dismiss the kids ages four years old through fourth grade, four years old through fourth grade for Children's Church. Before we get into the message, there's two things I'd like to like to do. One, just share my heart a little bit about the, the library thing out there. I know you may be thinking, oh, a bunch of books. Okay, who cares? But to be honest, books are the number one thing that formed my Christian walk with the Lord. They're the number one thing that shaped who I was because these are the words of godly Christians in the past who written and, and spoken the word of God to needs that I've had in my life. And um, so I, I value those books. Honestly, there's, there's something like if I were to run into the house, if it were burning down and there was one thing I would go get, it would be those books, okay? So, so if the church burns down, help me get my books out, okay? So, you know, but the, these are an important, they're pieces of me. They're not just words on a page. They're pieces of me. They are my heart. They are, they are how God has grown me throughout the years, and so I have gone through and picked out the books that have been special to me to put out there because I think they can help other people in their walk with the Lord. There are truths that are in those books that can be a real blessing in our lives. The other thing that I wanted to mention here at the beginning is we need to be praying for Mrs. Carsey's sister and the, and the family. Um, you guys got the prayer request last night, most likely, if, uh, on the prayer chain, but her sister had a stroke and... Uh, they don't think that things are looking too good for that. So we just I want to start off the service this morning just having a word of prayer for their family and uplifting them. Let's go and pray. Father, I think of Mrs. Carsey's right now, and I know this is her sister, and her sister's special to her. And, and she loves her, and I know that's it's hard for, for her to hear and to, to think of her sister being in this situation that she's in now.
And it's hard for the family members who are most likely there with her right now as well. And I just pray that you will comfort, strengthen, and uplift all the family. Lord, I know that you can do miracles and amazing things. And though the doctors say there isn't much hope, there can still be hope with you. And so, Lord, we, we do want to pray that you can turn things around if it's in your will. If not, Lord, we want to just pray that you'll give the confidence and the hope and the trust that all of us need to have in our hearts for looking forward to seeing her in heaven and knowing that she's going to be with you, Lord. Father, you've commanded the church to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And there's a little bit of a mixture of both in this situation. And I just pray that our hearts would reach out to, to the Carsey's family and to Mrs. Carsey's especially right now. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter number 13. So we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, just looking at the early church, how it functioned, how it, what, what its goals were, and uh, trying to glean lessons from, from, this, from these accounts about how our churches today should action and function and, and look like in some ways. Obviously, there isn't 100% of a carryover from the Church of Acts because the culture was different than it is today. But there are important lessons that we need to learn. Otherwise, these lessons wouldn't have been written here to begin with, right? In Acts chapter number 13, we're only going to cover those first three verses um, in this text because that introduces the topic that I want to develop today. So up to this point, when we've looked at the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul has been involved in ministry, right? He's, been, he's gone to Antioch and he, and he joined Barnabas to help in, in Antioch. He actually joined the church there. He's become a member of the church there in Antioch. But Paul's role so far has just been an active church member. He's been involved in ministry as a church member within his church. This is his church right here. But from this point forward, Paul is going to be involved in what we today call full-time Christian ministry. God is calling, ordaining, and setting apart Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries, essentially to the Gentiles. And God had already told him that this is what he was going to do with him when he called him on the road to Damascus. But here we see this shift to actually full-time doing this type of ministry in, the, in his life. Now, every believer in the church is called to ministry. In fact, we talked about that a little bit this, this morning from the book of 1 Peter. It says, let every man minister according to the gift that he has received. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him minister as the ability that God giveth him. We have all been given spiritual gifts and ministries that God expects us to fulfill. Uh, the Bible teaches that this is for the benefit of the church, to grow, to edify the church. And honestly, when one member is not fulfilling their function that God has called them to fulfill, the church cannot be everything that God has intended it to be. But there are some people who are called to more of a full-time pastoral service. All of you in here want to be pastors, anybody? No? Okay. So, <laughs> not everybody is called to that. We talked about that as well. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Not everybody is called to stand up here and preach. Not everybody is called to teach a Sunday school class. And some people are very glad that that is the case, that they don't have to do that on a day-to-day -day basis, right? But we all have been given something, and some people are called to that more full-time type of service. Now, when I look at um, the state of American Christianity today, there are fewer and fewer people who are even interested 
in this type of ministry. Fewer young people are even considering it. Most young people, their consider is, what job can I get that's going to make me a lot of money? Or can I get a scholarship to play this sport at such and such a, a school? Or what can I do that I really just love doing? And those things aren't necessarily inherently wrong, but it doesn't seem to even be on their mind these days. And we see fewer and fewer people surrendering to what we call full-time Christian service. And let me ask you this question. Do you think God has stopped calling people to full-time Christian ministry? I think about how many people are in the world, are in the world and it's blooming. It's what, 8 billion people, I think, is the new statistic? Okay, it's, it's, it's like exploding. Do you think God called fewer people to be missionaries today than he did in the 1800s? I don't think that's what's going on. I think people are becoming less willing to do to commit their entire life to doing what God wants them to do with their life. But there are full-time types of ministries that people can be involved in. And it's not just being a pastor. It's not just being a missionary. You have uh, seminary or Bible college professors. You have Christian school teachers. Um, we closed our, our Christian school. What was the number one reason? It wasn't money. It wasn't students. It was teachers. Okay? We didn't have teachers. Do you think that God wasn't calling? He wasn't trying to meet those needs? Um, you also have evangelists. You have mission agency workers. Those are full-time positions, right? Uh, some churches have full-time music pastors or music ministers or youth pastors or church planters. There is a need for these types of things in our churches today, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And I, I, I'm not going to lay the blame on God because it's not his fault. It isn't his fault that, that people aren't going and doing the work. God says, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the fields, for they are white, already to harvest, right? God, ha God knows the need, and he knows how many people it takes to do, do the ministry, and he is calling people, but people aren't answering. And I think within the church, God definitely is calling, the people, calling people into ministry, but they're just not listening. And when we look at the Bible, we know that God calls people to ministry. You look at Moses. In Exodus 3, verse 10, says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. Okay? God called Moses to a specific, particular ministry, a task that he wanted him to fulfill. And that was to go to Pharaoh and to preach to Pharaoh and say, If you don't let the people go, this is what God's going to do. Okay? God saw the persecution of the Jews. He saw the need, in verse 7, and he knows their sorrows. And God wanted somebody to take care of that problem. In Jeremiah 1, verse 5, Jeremiah was called, says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. It's interesting that Jeremiah was called even before he was born, right? And Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. We'll talk about that verse a little bit more later on. Timothy was given a calling, a gift from God. The callings that, that God is, is calling us to are things that he has gifted to us. What do you do? I mean, a lot of times, okay, back up. I've used this illustration before, but Christmas time, okay? When grandma sends you a Christmas present, what, what is it usually? In my case, it was underwear, okay? So, so Superman underwear, okay? And as a kid, do you really want that gift? No, you don't want that gift. You wanted the Xbox or something like that, right? Okay, but that's how we treat the calling of God, like it's the underwear that grandma sent me. Can I get rid of this? Can I, can I avoid this at all costs? But ministry is actually something to be desired. It is admirable. Admirable, admirable, yeah, I can't even say the word. Admirable goal to chase after. I, I've, 
I think of Pastor Carsey's and Mrs. Carsey's, honestly. They have a, Peter Davis dedicated a song to you guys. What was it? The Joy of the Lord or something? Joy in Serving Jesus. That's what it was, okay? And that describes the way that they've, they've ministered, you know? And it's not a drudgery. It is not horrible. I Honestly, I am living my life right now. I get to study the Bible every single day, you know? And I, I love that, okay? So it is, it is something to be desired, something to praise God for. Uh, J. Gresham Macon, an early fundamentalist Presbyterian, he, he quoted this. He said, you alone, as ministers of reconciliation, can give what the world with all its boasting and pride can never give, the infinite sweetness of the communion of the redeemed soul with the living God. I have the opportunity to preach the gospel to people who don't know the Lord as their savior and restore them to a relationship with God, the, the greatest blessing they could ever have. I have that opportunity. As a pastor, I have the opportunity to stand up here and preach the word of God to encourage you in your relationship with the Lord, to walk closer with him, to enjoy communion and fellowship with him, to find that God is great and God is good and a relationship with him is sweet it is to be desired and that's that's a great blessing that God has given me this opportunity to preach his word but it is also a serious calling uh, James 3 verse 1 my brethren be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation it's a great blessing but it's also a great responsibility I say a whole lot of words up here okay and I'm not normally a talker so most of my words are coming from the pulpit Okay, so, but I am going to give an account for every idle word that I say as, as a minister of God. It's serious. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. So it's a serious calling as well, and we need to take it seriously. But as we, as we approach this text in Acts chapter number 13, we see Paul and Barnabas are called to the ministry. Let's go and read verses 1 through 3 again. It says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So we have the, these are the, listing the leaders within the church of, of Antioch. We have Barnabas and we have Saul, obviously, okay? But we also have um, Simeon and Lucius, men from Africa. Okay, from was called Niger and of Cyrene. Those are both African de designations there. And then you have Manaen, who was a prince who had been raised in royalty alongside Herod. Okay, and these are the leaders within the church of Antioch. And God comes to these men, and He says, as they as they ministered to the Lord, verse two, and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, "Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them." And when they had fasted and prayed. And laid their hands on them. They sent them away. The question we're going to ask this morning is this. How do you know if you are called into full-time ministry? Okay? We could go and rehash every lesson that we've ever taught and preached on how to know the will of God. And those, that would be great. But there, is, there are some things that we see more specifically dealing with full-time ministry that I'd like to develop from the word of God. We're going to give you five marks that God might be calling you into full-time ministry. The first one we're going to look at is found in 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Let's go and turn there. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Five marks that God might be calling you into ministry. The first one, 1 Timothy 3, is a desire. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 1. 
This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Okay, Paul is affirming. If you have a desire for the, for the office of a, being a pastor, the ministry, okay, in this case, you are desiring a good work, a good thing. And so he say it's a lot of times we recognize this calling of God in our hearts starts with a desire. Think about think about a verse that you guys all know. Um, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall give thee the desires. Am I quoting it right? No, I'm mixing two verses. Go ahead, Pastor Carson. So my mind's gone. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Yep. Okay, that's not the one I wanted, though. I wanted the other half. <laughs> okay, so, was it? Psalm 37. I didn't write this down, so we're just going to turn there, okay? Psalm 37. Nope, not that one. He shall give, he, give thee the desires of thine heart. That's the one I'm looking for. 37.3, okay? I'm not good with references. You know that. Okay, so, was that? Yep, okay, so... Trust in the Lord and do good, and so shalt thou dwell in the land. That's 37.3, then verse 4, though, okay? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I think this is a key verse, because a lot of times we think God only wants what's bad for me. God wants me to be miserable. My mom used to talk to me about this, because I wanted to be a missionary as a young kid. And she said, you can't go to Africa or Australia, because they have snakes. I'll never come visit you. You know, but her mindset was, if God calls you, he's going to send you to the worst place on the face of the earth, the one where you're going to be the most miserable. But that's not the heart of God. That's not how our God is. He wants what's best for us. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, plans of good and not of evil. God delights in giving us good things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. And, and desire God's gifts towards us are good gifts. But he says, delight thyself also in the Lord. This idea of find your delight in God. You want, you want to have this delightful relationship, this delightful life. You want to have the desires of thine heart. Find your delight in God. God ultimately is the greatest delight we could ever have. As Christians, sometimes we come and we go through the, the routine of being a Christian, but we don't desire, we don't love, we don't delight, we don't have a passion for God. And he's saying, delight in God. And what's he going to do? He will give thee the desires of thine heart. And what I, I believe this means is God is going to transform your desires to be what he wants. And when they are what he wants, he's going to give you that thing. And what God wants for our lives is what's best for our lives. So the first step to knowing that God is calling you is having a desire. If there's that desire within your heart and you're walking with the Lord, that may be a sign that God is trying to call you into ministry. If your heart burns with a desire to preach the Bible, to see souls saved or believers edified, you might be being called into ministry. If you can say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. You might be called into ministry, as Spurgeon, as Spurgeon calls it, if you have an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work of the ministry. If your thought is, woe is me if I don't get to do this thing. I think about this, and I'm not trying to use myself as an example here, but when I did CIT at the Wilds of the Rockies, we had to have an interview with... Uh, 
Mike Herbster, I think it was. Okay, so I always get them confused which ones are which, the twins. At that time, they looked more alike than they do today. And so I, I confused them a lot more. But I had to have an interview, and one of his questions was, if God doesn't let you go to the mission field, what are you going to do? And I just started crying. You know, that, that was my response. Because really, wh what was I saying? Woe is me if I don't get to do this. Woe is me. This is, this, is, this is what God has put in my heart, and I have to do this thing. I have to be able to minister to him. Paul and Barnabas, when we look at their life in 1 Corinthians chapter, or Acts chapter number 13, when God gave them this desire, they were already involved in ministry because they wanted to be involved in ministry. They had a heart for the ministry. Uh, Paul and Barnabas went down to Antioch to edify the church there. They had a passion for this kind of work. In Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. I think a sign that God might be calling you to life, to ministry, is this desire for the ministry. And people who truly have that desire are going to find opportunities to do something. Whether it's given to them or not, they're going to try to find opportunities to minister to other people. But there are those who have wrong desires. We have to, we have to make sure this is a God-given desire. And so I, I wrote down three different types of desires that can be wrong for the ministry. First one is some desire it so they can have prestige. They think preaching or ministry is a way to advance their reputation, to make them look better. Okay? And that is, that is an, evil, an evil motivation for being a pastor. Maybe they want to, they see an evangelist who travels all around the country and, and everybody's talking about this guy and they're like, I want to be that. So I can be that man who everybody talks about or is on the news and everybody's interviewing because of his stand in certain areas. But to be honest, the average preacher doesn't get that kind of prestige. Pastor Carsey's, did you ever get that kind of prestige in 30 years? No, I'm not expecting it either, okay? So nobody is saying, I want to buy the books by Pastor Carsey's and Pastor Jason um, that, that, they, that they have written because he knows who we are and nobody cares, okay? So if, you, if your desire is for prestige, you're gonna quit you're, you know, pretty quickly, pretty early on. Men who desire prestige have a, t have a tendency to compromise, to abandon what they've always held to be true. I think of an example, I'm not going to give you the name, but there's a graduate of Ambassador Baptist College who, even when he was in our circles, was all about himself. Every message was all arrogance and was all about, about making himself look better. And now he is nationally known on television. You've seen him. If I named his name, you probably would know him. Um, but he abandoned everything he believed. He now has uh, services where he casts demons out of people, okay, and heals people from cancer over the telephone. But why did he go this direction? Because he wanted a crowd. And I'm not just judging motives because I can judge his actions here, okay. He, is, he, he just wanted a crowd. That's what, that's what it was all about. And he got that crowd because the ministry was all about prestige. And I guarantee you the devil will give you that if that's what, that's what you want. But there's a tendency among younger preachers especially to compromise because we want to draw a crowd. We, want, we, want, we gauge our influence by the number of people that hear us. And that's the wrong motivation. It's a wrong desire. That's not the type of desire that we're talking about here. Some desire to be heard. Maybe they feel like they have a message to give to the world and nobody will listen to me. But if I can just get that position, everybody will start listening to what I have to say. Okay, honestly... That's not how it works in being a pastor either, okay? Sometimes you feel like your message goes in one ear and out the other, right? But that's not a right motive 
to have for the ministry. Or some desire authority. They want to be the person who's in charge. They want to be the one who dictates how things go, what things are done. And some, some people see ministry as an opportunity to make everybody do their own their, things their way. When we first came to America, the first American church that we attended here in Oklahoma City was a church like this. The pastor would literally get up from the pulpit and say, if you don't like what I'm saying, you can stand behind my car as I back out of the parking lot after the service. Okay? Those types of statements are an attitude of, I am in this for the authority. And it, they are abusive. They are wrong. And that is a wrong desire to be in the ministry. But the first sign that God might be calling you into ministry is a desire. The second one, let's turn back to Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter 13 is the leading of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, okay? The Holy Ghost communicated. He called them specifically, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Martin Luther described the calling of God as God's voice heard by faith. The Holy Spirit has to be the one to call you. Uh, those who are called know this sense of leading, purpose, or a growing commitment to the ministry. But in this point, what I want to point out here is this is not grandma called, okay? This isn't grandma said, oh, you're my nice little preacher boy. And so you grow up and you feel like you got to be a preacher boy because grandma said you had to be, right? But it's also not self-called. You don't self-appoint yourself to this. This is something God has to call yourself to. Now, I would love for all of my children to be involved in ministry in some way, in full-time ministry even, okay? That, that would be my delight. But here's the truth. I can't call them to the ministry. I can't, I can't say this is what God wants for your life. God has to do that job. It's his, it's his job. And I don't want them anywhere where God does not want them to be. The worst place you could be is in the ministry when God has not called you to be in the ministry. I think the leading of the Holy Spirit is found by an assurance that this is what God wants you to do. And it's seen as God opens up doors for you to be involved in ministry. Paul and Barnabas were not merely chosen by the church. The Holy Spirit had communicated his will to the church. And what did he say? He said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. In the Holy Spirit calling Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, they were separated from the rest of the people. The rest of the people were not called to this ministry, right? So uh, Lucius, was he called to the ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles? No, that wasn't his calling. But Barnabas and Saul were separated to that. And what that means is when, when God calls you, your life is going to be distinct or different. It is separate from that of other people's lives. On the negative side, you, you may not have a house at the same time that everybody else has a house. You know what Katie and I lived in for the first few years of our marriage? A one-room, I don't know what to call it, okay? So one room, that was it. We had a bed and a dresser and a desk, okay? That was, that was our house right there, okay? In one little tiny room with, with Chloe. And we'd oftentimes stick her out in the, because in the, uh, it was part of the church, so we'd stick her in the church hallway so that we could hear her when she was awake all night, okay? So, but you know what? We didn't get our own house till we moved back here to Oklahoma. And how many years had we been married by that point? Almost probably at least eight, right? Okay, so we didn't get a house when everybody else did. That may, that may, be, that may be the case because our lives were different. They were distinct. They were separate. Your kids, they may not grow up speaking English like other kids do. They might go to the Philippines and, and have to learn uh, Tagalog, okay? Or Africa and have to learn Swahili or something like that. 
you're, you might end up eating different foods. Okay, Jim already does this, but okay, so you might end up eating different foods. You don't get steak and potatoes for every meal. If you go to Thailand, you might be served a monkey brain or two, okay? Or rats, they do that too, okay? So, you, and you might, you, your life might just be different in those ways. You might have to wear different clothes. Katie wore, uh, in India, she wore Punjabis whenever we'd go out to town. I don't think um, they fit you anymore, right? Okay, so she can't wear them anymore, okay? So, but she would wear different clothes when we were there in, in, in India. Um, you may, your, your kids might not have the opportunities to be involved in soccer, or baseball, or American athletics, like other people's kids might, might be able to. Those are the negatives, but on the positive side, they might just get to see the world. I mean, Chloe, baby, doesn't even re remember it, but grew up, I mean, six months at least, you know, in India, eating Indian food, and getting to see the, the world as a child. Uh, your kids might grow up bilingual, and have extra skills that other kids don't even have a clue how to do. I think of Nathan Fonmiller. Nathan can communicate in English and Spanish. He's hiding behind a man now. Okay. So, but he grew up on the mission field and he became bilingual. And those are skills, benefits that God gave because of the way that he lived. You might, the kids might just grow up knowing that their parents were obedient to God's call and desire to follow in their footsteps. R imagine a legacy like that to be able to leave to your kids. Or... This is, this is one I've seen. You might end up with a very close-knit family because, honestly, when you're in ministry, you get to spend a lot more time with your, with your family than maybe some people do, especially as a missionary because you're there together the whole time, okay? <laughs> so day in and day out. But, but here's the key, that God must be the one doing the calling. You can't call yourself. Grandma can't call you. I can't call you. The church can't even call you. God must do the calling, I believe some people have tried to call themselves, and when things get hard, those are the ones generally who quit as well. But the, again, the best place that you can be is exactly where God wants you to be. So first, a desire. Secondly, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, you need the gifting of the Holy Spirit. For this, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter number four. Exodus chapter number four. When God calls, God enables you. He will give you the ability to do what he has called you to do. In Exodus chapter number four, God called Moses. Actually, in Exodus chapter number three, God called Moses. And we're going to look at one verse from this story in the life of Moses from verse number, chapter number three, but then we'll focus primarily on chapter four. But when God called him, Moses excuse after excuse as to why he can't do what God has called him to do. And I, again, I believe this is where most people are who are called and aren't giving, aren't surrendering to that call. They're giving excuses. And yeah, they may be logical. Moses' excuse is probably a true excuse, the excuses that he gives. But they aren't, they aren't enough to get you out of doing what God wants you to do. But Moses gives excuse after excuse. The first one we see is in chapter 3, verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? What, what reputation do I have? I'm not this great person who can do great things that everybody looks to and says, he's going to do great things. No, Moses, Moses was at this point, right? He was uh, out in the wilderness, okay? Maybe in one, at one time he was somebody because he was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. But it's been a while since that happened. He is, he is now a, a nobody shepherd, basically. And he says, who am I? But God's answer, God's response in verse 12 here is to say, 
And he said, surely I will be with thee. Okay, God promises to be with you. Yeah, maybe you don't have it in yourself to do these great things. You are a nobody in, in all worldly understanding of things. But in ministry, you are God's representative. And though you can't do anything, God can do everything. And if he is with us, anything is possible. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You don't have to be a somebody. You don't have to be the person that everybody looks at and says they're going to be successful in life. The next excuse that he gives is found in verse number 1 of chapter 4. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. Okay? Moses says, they won't listen to me. They're, they're not going to believe what I have to say. In fact, what he had to say was kind of spectacular, that God was going to deliver them from the Egyptians. But God confirmed his message of, of Moses through signs and wonders. And I honestly think that God can work in people's hearts to ex accept the message that we bring. My eloquence is not going to make my preaching any better. It has to be God working in the hearts of people to change people's lives. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? And God does the work. God will, will work in their hearts to accept the message. The final excuse he gives is in verse number 10, chapter 4, verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am, of, I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. This is probably true. He probably was, had a hard time talking to people. And Moses gives this excuse, but in verse 14, we see God gets angry because Moses just keeps rejecting what he's trying to tell him. God's saying, I want you to do this. And Moses says, no, I can't do it because of A, can't do it because of B, can't do it because of C. I just can't do it, Lord. I can't do what you're telling me to do. And God gets angry. And so what does God say? Okay, fine. I'm going to send Aaron and he's going to do all your talking. But you know what the miracle of this story is? After the very first encounter they have with Pharaoh, Moses actually does all the rest of the talking in the story. Because after God called him, God gave him the ability to do what God wanted him to do. Your own physical limitations do not limit God. They, they are not something that keeps God from doing what he wants to do through you. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. God can give us the grace to do what he wants us to do, to do all these every good work that he has for us. He is sufficient for us. You might not possess the gifts right now, but God will grow you. He will enable you to do that which he has called you to do. And one of the signs that God might be calling you to, to the work is that he is gifting you. He is giving you the abilities. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12, I've preached on before, says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended, let's skip on to the next verse here, and he gave some, these are the gifts, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints in the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God calls people and he gives them the ability 
to do the things that he has called them to do. He gives them this grace, these gifts, to do the work so that the church can be edified. Saints can be made more perfect. They can be sanctified. They can be raised up to do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. God gives every one of us spiritual gifts to do some form of ministry to edify the church. Being able to recognize the gifting of the Holy Spirit is a strong mark that God might be calling you into this ministry. So we have desire, we have the leading of the Spirit, we have the gifting of the Spirit. Fourthly, we have confirmation of the church, back in Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter number 13. <clears throat> In Acts 13, after the Holy Ghost has told them to separate Barnabas and Saul, verse number 3 says, And when they had fasted and prayed, this is the church, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We aren't, all, we aren't left alone to recognize God's calling in our life. God also calls the church to recognize his calling within people and to affirm that and to send them out. So if you think you, you are called, but nobody in the church sees it, that probably should give you question, okay? You probably should take a step back and say, I need to reevaluate this and rethink it. The church in this account recognizes that God has called Barnabas and Saul to the ministry to be missionaries to the Gentiles, but then they ordain them. That's what we're seeing in these texts. The church ordains the ministers. It's not some external board, not the Southern Baptist Convention, not a mission agency, but the church ordains them and sends them out to the ministry. The church, before they did so, they fasted and they prayed. They sought God's leading in this, which they already had it clearly laid out. But then it says they laid hands on them. This was a sign of officially recognizing and appointing them to ministry. In fact, the church is cautioned not to lay hands on anybody suddenly. 1 Timothy 5:22 says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker, of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. But the idea is don't ordain, don't, offici don't officialize anybody too quickly. But we are to analyze, we are to evaluate men for the ministry. The church should be involved in the process of recognizing, training, and appointing men and women for full-time Christian service. If there's a serious lack in character or even skill, they should be the ones to point that out to them and help them grow. Not just criticize, not just throw stones, but help people grow in these areas. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Best thing you can do to help somebody who thinks that they are called is to help them grow in that calling. And the church is called to be involved in this whole process. If somebody says, God has called me to ministry, we should be surrounding them and helping them to do and become everything that they need to be to, to do the ministry. That's, that's our role as a church. So the fourth one is confirmation by the church. And then the fifth one is qualification, okay? Qualification. In 1 Timothy, we are given the qualifications of a pastor. We're given the qualifications of a deacon. But to be honest, when you read through those lists, everything in that list really should summarize every single Christian. We should all be like, the, like this, these things that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Let's go ahead and turn there, okay? 1 Timothy chapter number 3. 
The difference is the pastor is required <laughs> to be these things, okay? But we should all be these things. First Timothy chapter number three, starting in verse number one. And we already read verse one, but this is a true saying. If any man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. That means faith, he's faithful to his wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. That may not be everybody, but most of these are. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For a man, for if a man know how to rule his own house, how, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them who are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now at this time, I'm not going to go into depth about every little detail of these qualifications here. But you could summarize all of them in five categories. He is, he is to be a good reputation in his public reputation before other people. He is to have a good marital relationship. Okay? He is faithful to his wife. He is to have a good family. He takes care of and raises and trains his children to glorify the Lord. He walks with the Lord. He has a personal reputation. And then he is doctrinally sound. He holds to the truth. But all of it could be summed up with this word that's used here in the text in verse number seven of good report. Or there's another one. It says blameless, above reproach. What the, the, the central idea of all the qualifications of a minister for God is that he needs to be above reproach have a, a testimony that he is walking with the Lord and doing what's right. And I think that that's something we need to consider as we consider whether I'm called to ministry. Maybe God is trying to call you, but you're not quite there yet. You aren't, you aren't as qualified as you ought to be. You are, maybe your kids are crazy, running amok, I don't know. Okay, so, you know, they're uncontrollable. You may not be ready yet. But that doesn't mean God's not calling you. It's just a yet type of thing, okay? So, in conclusion, if God, if God has shown you through these, these marks that he is calling you, what, what should you do now? I think a call to preach is a call to prepare. If you believe that God wants you in full-time ministry, and through these five marks he's confirmed that to you, first place probably should be to, I mean, I'll just tell you what's traditionally done, okay? I think there's a lot of ambiguity here. I'm going to tell you what's traditionally done when somebody believes God is calling them, okay? The first step is coming forward in an invitation and saying, I'm surrendering to do the, do the work of the ministry, to serve the Lord in any way that I can, that I can do it. So that, that's usually the first step. Then, ideally, the church should get involved in helping you prepare, confirming that calling, praying for you, and, and mentoring you, okay? Then usually, a Bible college education is necessary. Again, I said if God's called you, he's called you to prepare for the work of the ministry. These days, if you're an adult, that can be done online. And I think that's probably best because you probably can't just drop your job and move your whole family across the country and not have any way of supporting yourself. But for children, younger people, not children, they're not children anymore, okay? <laughs> younger people, it's probably best for them to go to a college and to get that education because there are philosophical um, cultures that they need to learn from the school that you can't get through a computer that you get from being there but honestly 
what you do after that really depends on what God's leading to you to do. If you're pastoring or youth pastoring, a good way to, uh, the next step would be to become ordained and then ideally to serve underneath somebody for some time, to learn from somebody who knows what they're doing and then start applying for churches that, want, that are looking for a pastor or a youth pastor. For those interested in missions, I know this one pretty well, after you get ordained, you apply to a mission agency and they interrogate you for three hours. Okay, that's what they did to me. Okay, so, which is worse than the ordination, to be honest. Okay, so, but they, they do this, they do this evaluation. Then you have to go and you raise support on deputation and then finally make preparations to go to the mission field. Okay, for school teachers and music directors, honestly, you guys have the easiest part if you can get it is you just have to apply. Okay, so that's, that's generally how things work in churches. Okay. But everyone's story is going to be a little bit different on how God leads them to know that he's calling them and what, and what they do after that point. But I, I think the, this kind of layout kind of just helps you understand what the expectations are usually in most cases. Um, my story was a little bit different. I, I graduated Bible college. I got ordained, interviewed by the mission agency. And then I started deputation part-time because I was a single guy and met Katie while I was on deputation. And when we got married, that's when I started full-time deputation. We served on the field. But honestly, God led us back to the States. And looking back, I know it was God. I can see his hand clearly on how he has led us to where we're at today. And at that time, I didn't think so. At that time, I'm like, Lord, what are you doing in my life? But finally, after being here in Oklahoma for five years, God opened the door to pastor here at Harvest Hills Baptist Church. And it wasn't something I was looking for. I didn't move out here to become the pastor of Harvest Hills Baptist Church. I moved out here to work at Chick-fil-A, okay? So, you know, but, but God led in my life. And I'm grateful for the ministry that he has given me. And I just want to challenge those of you who might, God might be calling to consider that. And these five marks will help you in determining that in your life. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation this morning. <clears throat> feel bad saying I moved out here to work at Chick-fil-A. I mean, okay, so it's like, how low can it get? Okay, so no. But God, so. And if you don't mind playing. Don't forget the uh, selection of books that are out there for you guys to check out. The sign-up sheet's on a clipboard on the back. Um, also, tonight, we'll be, I'll be preaching on spiritually leading your wife, continuing on the husband's role within the marriage. But let's go ahead and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Um, Jim, do you mind closing us in prayer?